Welcome to this special series of Moneyball Medicine focused on AI, machine learning, and analytics applied to drug discovery and development. This special series was recorded as part of the AI Application Summit produced by Corey Lane Partners this October in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm your host, Harry Glorikian. In this series, I will interview different speakers from the event and we will hear their experiences. We will dive into the challenges and opportunities they're facing and their predictions for years to come. Welcome to Moneyball Medicine. What if you could create a system that would learn from every cancer patient's experience? Would that learning improve the care and the outcome of the next patient? Would it help accumulate the real world evidence needed to not just achieve outcomes of existing approaches, but accelerate research into new areas? Those are the sorts of questions we will ask our next guest here on Moneyball Medicine. My guest today is Dr. Shurjal Baxi. Dr. Baxi currently serves as the medical director at Flatiron Health, where she focuses on real world evidence. Dr. Baxi received her medical degree and master's in public health from the University of Illinois. She did her residency at Memorial Sloan Kettering and joined the faculty in 2011. In her role, she is actively involved in therapeutic clinical trials, but in addition to that, she is no stranger to using data to making things in oncology care better. She has used large national cancer registry data to investigate practice patterns in oncology. Dr. Baxi, welcome to the show. Good morning. I had the pleasure of including Flatiron Health in my book, Moneyball Medicine, but if it would be good if you could tell the listeners a little bit about the company. Sure. So Flatiron Health is essentially a health technology company that is focused in oncology. What Flatiron Health has is really a two-sided business that fits together. The first side is a electronic health record system that provides services to community oncology practices. And the goal of the provider side is to make delivering cancer care for each patient optimal. The other side of the business is aggregating real world evidence. And so what Flatiron has been able to do is to work for both sides by bringing together the data that's generated in real world in the community oncology practices and try to optimize the care on that side. And by having access to the entire medical record, then be able to pull that through in a de-identified way and aggregate large data sets of cancer patients who are being treated in the real world. So are there sort of examples that you might be able to share of, of um, how, that, how that care or how that data has impacted you know, particular patients or a patient subset? Um, that's actually a lot of what we do on the research side of the business, which is where I, I spend most of my time. If you can imagine in the last five years with our growing appreciation of the different molecular subsets of patients, all of a sudden diseases that we once thought were just one disease are turning out to be sub-cohorts of multiple diseases that are called one thing. And let me give you a, like a really hard example. Um, Non-small cell lung cancer used to be described by histology alone. Well, we've now appreciate that non-small cell lung cancer 
has histology specifications, but also biomarker specifications, such as EGFR or ALK. These are genetic alterations that define the behavior of the cancer and increasingly also predict for therapeutic response. What we're able to do because of this access to the entire medical record is identify these subsets of patients and use this data to help generate um, research that will improve access to the right drugs and accelerate research in these small subsets of patients, which an individual provider might see one or two of a year. But when you take our entire network of providers across the United States, we can now aggregate patients and have actual cohorts that can be used to answer important research questions. So, but I'm assuming that also translates as data becomes more uh, validated on the patient side, where, where somebody would change a decision that they might make, they naturally would have gone right, but now they might go, okay, not two standard deviations to the right, but just one standard deviation to the right and treat this patient slightly differently based on the data they get from your system. Right, so I, I think what you're describing is really the ultimate goal, which is a, a learning healthcare platform where the data that we're cleaning up and looking at on the de-identified research side can then be fed back in order to help doctors make decisions in real time with the patient that's sitting in front of them. And I think Flatiron is really poised to lead that space given this two-sided model of our business. And we look forward to the day where it is a continuous cycle of data being cleaned and feeding back into the system. And it's really the combination of the engineers and the clinicians that are on both sides of this business that are gonna make that a reality. In the, in the short term, I think that already the things that we're learning about practice patterns, testing patterns, all of this stuff we're learning in real time and, kelp, and can help inform how we build out the EMR system because these electronic medical records were created in theory to to be meaningful use and then they started out and, and you laugh but you know they really became ves vessels for data where everybody just dumps everything in them and what we believe is that technology can take that and actually help doctors perform better by having evidence-based um, information at their fingertips. Yeah, I've always said that the historical electronic medical record is just for accounting purposes. It's definitely not for managing patients. And and it's, a, you know, Washington and everybody looks at it as, as oh, no, it's going to help manage a patient. I'm like, ah, that's not what it was originally designed for. But I... Um but I think it can, and I, I actually feel like it's the foundation. So transitioning from a paper chart to an electronic record, which can grow and improve over time with software, is actually an important first step, and it needed to happen. And now it's on companies like Flatiron to take that to the next level. So what are some of the challenges when you're trying to implement this into clinical practice? That's a really good question. I. I believe as a clinician first that the day can be very busy and cancer is a very challenging disease to treat. Anything that disrupts the flow of a day is seen as an impediment to delivering care. And so from Flatiron's perspective, we've always respected that nothing we do should impact the quality of the care in a negative way. 
anything that we can do from our side in the EMR to improve care delivery and make the doctor and the clinic's life a little bit easier while also improving the patient's experience is a win. And the way that we we achieve this is we spend a lot of time speaking to our providers and asking them what their flow is like and what these changes that we might implement might actually do and whether they benefit them or not. While on the research side, everybody wishes that data was always entered in a structured way, right? If they could just check some boxes, it would make cleaning the data a lot easier. We realized early on, and I say we, um, but the the founders and, and some of the original people realized that for this to be sustainable, for our EMR to be valuable, it could it could only make their lives easier. And so as we learn why these data points are important, why it's important to identify upfront if somebody is EGFR positive or if they're HER2 positive, and we can capture that data and use it to inform the decisions that are being made between a patient and their doctor, well, you could see that there might be a reason then for the provider to enter that data into the system. But if it is a mandated enter and there is no value to the provider, I think that most busy clinicians are simply not going to do it. Well, I mean, at some point, there is some data we all need, right? basics around uh, the patient that may not seem relevant at that moment, but in aggregate make a difference to how we look at this patient long term. Um, how how do you see like the data folks on in your organization and the clinical folks actually you know working together there are two two different ways of looking at the world <laughs> I, I think that's a astute observation <laughs> but I, I think that it's that tension between the clinical folks and the data folks and the engineers that actually leads to a better product because we have to vet it across all these teams in order for a decision to move forward and it keeps us honest and really at the core of this is that individual patient, that individual patient journey, which we want to capture on the research side, but the clinician wants to capture on the provider side. And how all of that fits together, that's the challenge and the opportunity in this space. Um, I, I want to go back to the question you said about there's certain basic data that we will all eventually need, even if we don't have it at the time, right? That's kind of your point. I want to I want to highlight that in cancer, there's basic data that probably we all need, but actually to answer the really important research questions that are coming up as these subsets of patients become obvious, the granularity of that data that's going to be necessary to answer those questions, it's actually complicated and entering all of that data into the system on the provider side is is quite burdensome. And so I feel that technology is going to help us capture the data on the provider side, but really the focus on the research side is how technology can help us pull out all that data that's hidden in these medical records. So does that mean like a new job for a, a, some sort of scribe or somebody to help get that data in? help get that data in or help get that data out? Uh, maybe both, but, <laughs> but if you, you got to get it in first to get it out. So I've 
I've heard of uh, this idea of medical scribes and people following clinicians around and capturing all the data. You know, I have, um, I've been challenged to think outside the box by my technology colleagues in ways that as a clinician I hadn't ever imagined. Is it possible that there's some type of voice recognition that will automatically check boxes as a doctor is speaking in a clinic. I would love to see solutions like that become reality. I don't see that happening in the near future. And so what I like about Flatiron is that they're always modifying as they go. And if we can capture more structured data using novel approaches, I can't imagine anybody on the research side would be against such a move. I just, given the realities and the pace at which medical care changes in the United States, I think that that's something to hope for. But in the meantime, we need to solve for the current situation, which is that most important information in a patient's journey is still trapped in unstructured format within these medical records. So that, you know, you say medical care changing, and that brings me to, you know, how do you see the education of the physicians using this? Because they're not all familiar with all of these molecular methods. And you and I both know these molecular methods are, you know, there is a new biomarker, it seems like almost daily, that is becoming more relevant or that is relevant. And so if you're the daily practicing clinician, how does a system like Flatiron, you know, uh, either impart that knowledge on the physician or facilitate the learning for the user so that they can then treat the patient better? Right. So I think this comes back to meaningful use. And as we learn more about the impact of things like molecular testing in different disease subtypes or new drugs are developed that are agnostic to cancer type, but really focusing on the genetic alteration that led to the cancer in the first place. And that's becoming a kind of a theme, right? I, I feel that what Flatiron is uniquely poised to do because it has both sides of this model is to use the data that we observe from the de-identified research data sets to potentially feedback into the provider side with prompts, with asking of questions. I think one of the best examples of this when I was in training was at the VA, right? The VA was one of the first EHR systems. And one of the beauties of it was that it would prompt you at different time points to consider things that might be relevant for your patient. And that to me is an optimal use of low burdensome technology. Yeah, it's interesting. Nobody gives the VA any credit for what it deserves. I mean, they were way ahead of the curve, and the only thing that everybody does is like to bash the VA, which is crazy to me. And the fact that they're moving to another EMR, that is unbelievable, right? They're going to end up having to suffer through that whole implementation. Right. I mean... If we think about some of the original real-world data sets that were out there, the VA provided a lot of information for us to understand practice patterns and outcomes, not just in cancer, but across lots of diseases. We happen to be cancer-specific, but the potential of 
this type of data to accelerate research, whether it's in oncology or not, I, I think it's we're just at the beginning of this. So how do you see the real world evidence uh, that you guys are working on impacting? Is it, you know, maybe it's care. Maybe it's almost directing what therapy should and shouldn't be used. So that, in, you know, that actually has an implication on what might get paid for and what might not get paid for. I think entering this idea of what is paid for or not is something we've not fully worked out. So as we look at at real-world evidence and the research or the observations that can be made looking at real-world evidence, I think it will start to help us answer the complicated questions, which is, for the patient sitting in front of me, which is better when I have multiple options, right? So there was a time where for many cancers, we had very few therapeutic choices and doctors would choose based upon the consideration of the risk of the side effects against the potential benefits. We would have long conversations with our patients and their family members and try to align on what was the best path forward given kind of the the circumstances in front of us, the patient, their issues, their underlying medical uh, comorbidities. But it was often slightly anecdotal because clinical trial data often didn't include the kinds of patients that we were seeing in clinic. It would be anecdotal in the sense that I had a patient kind of like you maybe a few years ago and we did this and this is what happened. But what real world evidence allows us to generate is actual cohorts of patients that are more likely to look like you based upon aggregating large amounts of data. And so how that's going to feed back into the what about a patient like me type question, which I think is what many people are looking forward to being able to do with large aggregated data like this. I think it's a reality. It's just a matter of when. So do you have any examples that you can share where you were like, wow, that was interesting, or I never realized that. And, you know, even as a physician, that's sort of a eye-opening moment of not realizing something was what it was. Right. Um, I've had a lot of those aha moments since I started because I practice in a subspecialty clinic at a large academic center. And what we do there, although similar to what happens in community oncology practices, is actually very different because in community oncology practices, you have to see any cancer that walks in through the door. And you are dealing with lots of different patients at different stages of their um, patient their their cancer journey. You are dealing with sometimes missing information, which I can see now when I actually read these de-identified charts. And I, I guess I never appreciated how hard it is to make the choices when you're dealing with so many different cancer types on a given day. And so the example that hit me first was when I saw that doctors were often using in in head and neck cancer drugs that I would have thought of as non-small cell lung cancer drugs. But when I take a step back, that makes sense to me. You get comfortable with drugs that you know, and statistically speaking, you're going to see more non-small cell lung cancer patients than you are head and neck cancer patients in a community practice. And so the The idea that everything out there is guideline-driven and everyone is doing the same thing, it never ceases to strike me how much variation there actually is in practice. And a lot of that comes from 
the unknown. Clinical trials provide guidance on drug approvals. There is a lack of data in the middle there about how that clinical trial data should be applied across the board, across patients, across cancers. So the more and more I hear you speak, it's the more I, I think, you know, this data and, and having outcomes um, and feeding that back into a IT-based system is, you know, a must-have, a, a must almost a, a standard requirement because of the variation that you're mentioning, right? We're, um, you know, I just wrote a piece uh, on my blog about is, you know, is, uh, are we in a medical science or a data science? And sort of it's a little bit of, it's become a little bit of both where it, I think it was more art at one time and now it's becoming way more science and, and data driven. Um, so it's almost that this is, should be required training in, in uh, medical school. There is definitely an element of all of this that should be part of medical education. I, uh, the emphasis on the data, I think, is partially being driven by the rapidity of evidence generation. It is very difficult to keep up with all of the medical knowledge that is being discovered on a, on a regular cadence now. And to, for the average clinician to have time to take care of your patients, then write all your notes in the EMR, and then what, at the end of the day, go home and read five journals so that you know mo the most recent discoveries are. I mean, that is asking a lot of an individual and across all cancers, which the actual number of diagnoses has gone up as we've started to slice and dice these cancers into smaller cohorts. And so to the extent that technology can help make that knowledge easier to access, then absolutely. Do I think that technology will eliminate the need for the art of medicine? I still don't see it. I think that there is meaningful interactions between a patient and a doctor that take into account many things that are not captured in data. But for both the patient and the clinician to actually have all the information they need when they have that conversation, technology is probably the way that we're going to get there. Yeah, no, I believe it's a, it's a blending of the two, but I think we're lacking one of them a, a lot more than the other at the moment. So I, I don't want to take up any more of your time at this, uh, at this event we're both at, so thank you very much. appreciate it. Thanks, Harry. You've, you've made me think about many things. And that's it for this episode. Join me for the next episode of this special series of AI, machine learning, and analytics applied to drug discovery and development, where I speak to Dr. Ron Alpha, who is the Vice President of Discovery and Product at Recursion Pharmaceuticals. We'll discuss the question, what efficiencies could be achieved and what problems could be solved if data science was applied to drug discovery. If you enjoyed Moneyball Medicine, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It is greatly appreciated. Hope you join us next time. Until then, farewell.